Welcome to the bar. This is uh, the Socially Distant Sports Bar, episode one of our little home from home to talk about sport. It's kind of your new home now as well. We're going to be talking about old sport, of course, because there isn't any new sport at the moment. Uh, I'm Steph and I'm in my part of the bar in Cardiff. A little bit of a beer on the go. Socially distant from one another. Ellis, where are you? I'm in South London. Uh, I've got a beer as well. Uh, and I might move on to port later. Who knows? <laughs> I mean, t- time is an irrelevance at the moment, isn't it? So, uh, you know, I'm not getting dressed in the day. Um, all, all sense of routine has just disappeared. So, yeah, I mean, usually I would only drink port at Christmas, but all better off. It's in the cupboard. Might as well use it now. Um, Absolutely. Mike, I, I measured out the distance between our houses the other day with a little jog. Uh, which sounds a bit sinister. Uh, three yeah. minutes of medium pace running, I make it. You were jogging away at the time, weren't you? I, Absolutely. I, I, I Very fast. Yeah. Yeah, we, we, we live close to each other, Steph. We are, we are Cardiff residents. I'm, I'm in my bar in my house, which, you know, drinking a gin and tonic. Although, also, Ooh. oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, do, I, I do like a beer as well, but I mean, I'd like to, I'll kick back with a beer later, but for now, keep me sharp. Gin and tonic, slice of lemon. Perfect. Excellent. So uh, the bar I pictured as being the socially distant sports bar before we had to have a theoretical home rather than an actual home uh, is the one that you have in the backyard. Alice, you've been in the Bubbins bar? Yes, I certainly have. Mm. Okay. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragically, it's Cardiff's best pub, but it's not open <laughs> to the public. I mean, it, I think when you, you first when we came in there, you said this, it was your favourite pub in the country. And yeah. uh, yeah, it is. It's my pride and joy, Steph. I just can't believe you haven't been over yet. So whenever we get it, when all this nonsense is over, there's there's a there's a stool there waiting for you. I think that's where we need to. We'll, we'll shift it to a, a real bar when we don't have to socially distance. It's a curious mix, Mike's bar. Go on. Of Welsh rugby from about 1935. Because didn't your uncle play for Wales? Didn't he get a Welsh cap? My grandmother's brother played, yeah, second, like under 19s as it was then in 1939. So I got got his cap and his jersey. So it's rugby sort of 1930 up to about 1990. No, not that late. Not that late, really. I mean, sort of 83, 84. And then American football. And Elvis. A lot of American football, a lot of Elvis, a lot of classic 70s and 80s TV from both sides of the pond. So your Rockford Files, your Professionals, your Kojaks, your Minders, uh, you know, your Sweeney's. Oh, it's a a heady mix. It's a heady mix. So this is the, the, the physical thing that I had in my head for the bar. The theoretical side of it is that I wanted to watch some sport in the bar with you guys, but obviously we can't. So... The idea of this now is that we bring clips from YouTube, we bring some documentaries, some books, some other podcasts, if we like, from the world of sport, so we can fill the gap for everybody who hasn't got any live sport to watch. So, every episode, two clips each from YouTube, please, Uh, a book each, and a documentary from one of us to watch in the bar and let the evening pass with a bit of fun. So, every sport is admissible, I think. Smorgasbord, Stafford. The smorgasbord is the word, I think. I like that. I like that. But as with every pub conversation, if you bring something to the table, it's got to be good. Oh, 100%, yeah. It doesn't matter what it is, as long as it's good. Yeah, exactly. If it's kabaddi, it's good kabaddi. I love kabaddi. Sure Huge I, fan of kabaddi. Not, not sure I like the pressure you've put on this. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's crack into it. Round one. Uh, first YouTube clip, Mike, is one from you. Jonathan Davis... To David. David Dummy. Gets out of the tackle. And another one. Gets around Michael Eager. Gets oh. around Andrew John. Oh, lovely work here. Is that man Davis again? Davis! Yeah, there's a compilation. I, I think I'm allowed a compilation. I wasn't sure of the, of the, the parameters, but um, when it comes to Jonathan Davis, and that gets confusing these days, I'm, I'm talking about the original Jonathan Davis, Jiffy. A real treat that I was I was a, t- a teenager in the sort of mid to late 80s when, when uh, he first came on the scene. And just to be there, he, he, it was like Mike Pelly, you know, to be in the stadium watching Jonathan Davis play rugby was an absolute pleasure. And then... The sort of sands of time drift through the old hourglass then. And, but I watched that clip uh, three or four days ago of those, those best tries in, in league and union. And I was absolutely, I was laughing out loud watching it. He just blew me away again. I just, I'd forgotten how good he was. You know, and, 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 it, and it's when you think someone was brilliant 
and then you don't see it properly for probably 15 years, you know, and then you watch it again and think, he's actually better than I remembered, he's quicker than I remembered, he's electrically fast, he's great off both feet, he's got superb balance, he can chip, he's got a, he's got a cannon boot when he goes for a, for a long kick, he's tough as nails, I mean, that, that, everyone who watches that clip is going to love that clip, and you haven't got to be a rugby fan, you will love, if you love sport, you will love that clip. I think he's the Maradona of rugby. Oof. Yeah. Or or like George Best or something, because I watched that clip. I was a huge Jonathan Davis fan as a kid growing up because my earliest memories of rugby are just about the 87 World Cup when Wales reached a semi-final, but very, very vivid memories of the 88 Triple Crown. And Jonathan Davis went to my dad's school. So my, dad, um, my dad's school was Gwendraith Grammar, so they had Barry John was a Gwendraith Grammar boy. Then, obviously, F- Phil Bennett went to school in Llenetli. Gareth Davis was a Gwendraith Grammar boy who played with my dad in the first 15. And then Jonathan Davis was a Gwendraith Grammar boy. So, so four, three of the four outside halves, sort of 1970 to 1990, had all gone to the same school. And Carmen James had gone to that school as well. And, you know, it, I mean, an incredible, an incredible record for producing world-class outside halves from you, one you, you've also just school. You've also just reinforced every Welsh stereotype, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I've mentioned a legendary player that was basically went to your dad's school yeah, and, yeah. So, did all the, and so did everyone else who played for Wales. You know, well, and they, <laughs> they all knew each other. Do you know what? <laughs> I mean, I love, I love Welsh rugby from that period, and when I was thinking about which clip I was going to choose, I almost chose Ian Evans's try against... Scotland. Uh, Scotland. I was there for that. I was, yeah. I was stood, when he got that pass, I was I was stood right there. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. I mean, my the old self enclosure. My girlfriend, Izzy, she hates sport. Bizarrely, apparently, I showed her that on one of our first dates. Yeah. What sort a of smooth man! Bit... <laughs> what, yes, a what a leg. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, had, had you been on many dates before this? <laughs> yeah. No, never been on a date before. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, to, to uh, expand on our theory that I'm sort of uh, uh, reinforcing all these stereotypes, yeah, and Evans was my grandmother's uh, next door neighbour. So I, I'm there is barely a link well, between. I, I'm, I'm going to chip in there with, with this for the uh, the non Welsh listeners. When I went to university, my my the person who gave me the interview for university that let me. Go to university with no A levels on the on the provision that I played rugby for the university was Yane Evans's sister. Oh, who right. taught me at uh, yeah. who taught me PE? Non, seriously, non. <laughs> and, and and I, then, now, uh, I now teach at that university. This is this is every <laughs> last time you want. Oh dear. Oh god. There's only, there's only twelve people in Wales. People don't realise <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's not even enough for a team. The reason we have imports in the Welsh rugby team is that there's only twelve people in Wales. <laughs> oh my gosh! I, I worked with. Jonathan for a while when I worked at the BBC and for the first three years that I knew him he referred to me as Steve and it got past the point where I found it awkward I just found it really irritating and I sat down yeah. with one of the other commentators and I said look he's calling me Steve and I don't know how to tell he's Jonathan Davis how do I tell him he went he knows your name's Steph he's just testing you he thinks it's hilarious that you oh, react that's every single time. That's oh. so, and apparently he does this to a lot of people. Uh, he used oh, to wow. call Andrew Cotter Bill, as in Bill McLaren, for a long time, just to wind Super. him up to see if he could break him. And I, I, I really like it as a little bit of just getting inside I, your mind. I think it's got a good sense of humour. I, I tell you, go, go back to that clip briefly. Um, I was trying to explain to my boy, my boy plays, plays rugby, he's really young, obviously. But I was saying at that time when, when he went north, when he went to rugby league in the 80s and rugby was amateur to, to, to you know, basically to support his family. I think it was a quarter of a million he went for, which is a massive sum of money. But he went there with a price tag on his head there. So all these northern boys were only making probably 10 grand a year. And this Welsh boy comes and never played it in his life on a quarter of a million, right? Everyone trying to take his head off for the first season, you know, teach him a lesson. And they, they say, he'll get killed up there. Well, he more than held his own. Then he ended up being a superstar in rugby league, played for Great Britain. He was a superstar for Great Britain. Then he says, you'll never hack it in the NRL, though, in Australia. That's a different kettle of fish. He, he goes to Australia. He's a superstar in Australia. He wins the Man of Steel in Australian rugby league. Just, he, It's the biggest regret in rugby that he never played for the British Lions. He, he went yeah. to rugby league before he had a Lions cap. The two that he scores in the NRL that are on this compilation, the one for Newcastle and the one for Canterbury, are... 
if, if you only know his union career, have a look at those because they are just pace. Oh, that's right. That, I'll, I'll, I'll mention it again. It, I can't believe he was that quick. He doesn't look quick. When you meet Jonathan Davis, I've met him. He looks fit, right? Obviously, I've met him. He, he lives next door to me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's my brother. Yes. <laughs> His dad's my binman. No, he... Um, <laughs> He's he's very fit looking. He's ripped, right? <laughs> he's got that very Welsh look about him, right? Yeah. He does. He doesn't look like a fast bloke. He looks, <laughs> no, like, yeah. he, he looks like a fit man, right? Very fit man. He's not that tall. Like I said, he's wiry, but he is absolutely electric. And it's not, it's not just the top end speed. It's how quick he gets there. Also, he's so quick, it makes his mullet move in a unique way. <laughs> Which, I mean, he should be in the Hall of Fame just for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. Right, if you want to look at that one, we're going to stick the links to all of these clips that we're going to talk about up on the description of the episode. We'll stick them up on Twitter uh, as well. We've got the very catchy Twitter uh, tag of at TSDSB1. So it's really easy to search for. Uh, it's yeah, a, well done, Steph. Yeah, yeah. You well, had one job, mate. You had one job. I had one thing to do for the show, and that was set up a Twitter account, and I went for the most difficult one to describe, to say, and to find. So it's at TSDSP1. Uh, L, this is your first clip into the bar. Uh, this is from a little way further back. Keegan on the inside. Van Vince, the other soccer player. And Keegan wobbling a little bit there and start. Trying to put a lot of pressure on. He's wobbling all over the track. Vance Mintz is just about a half a wheel up at the moment, and Keegan's still wobbling, coming to the first bend, and Vance Mintz comes across, and Keegan's gone! Keegan touched the back wheel, and he's gone across the track on his back. This is Kevin Keegan um, falling off his bike on the BBC programme from the 1970s, Superstars. Which is actually, if he, obviously, it, would, they, it was brought back as a reboot um, about 10 years ago, I think. I think Johnny Vaughan might have hosted it, actually. But it is it is a really, really good idea for a programme. So it's elite sports uh, people um, from all sorts of different sports taking each other on in, in um, basically the decathlon, isn't it? So you're, you're hurdling and there's a steeplechase and then all sorts. And uh, Kevin Keegan, I don't know who he's racing, but it's a bike race. His bike is clearly not fit for purpose. <laughs> I mean, the, the bike, a layman can tell within the first two seconds what's going to happen, that the bike is, the bike is broken. If that was your school cycle proficiency test, you, you, get, you get it sent home, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so he falls off his bike and he hurts himself quite badly. But what I love about this clip is that he was, in 78 and 1979, European Footballer of the Year. Yeah. Like, he was an enormous football star. He was certainly England's most famous footballer at the time. He'd won it all at Liverpool. And, you know, what he'd be worth in today's money, it's... I, I, I dread to think it would be millions and millions. So he's done this thing. Obviously, there would have been a fee, but not a particularly sizable fee, I don't think. He's doing it for the fun of it. Yeah. He's also desperate to win. Yes. His wheel his wheel is wobbling because <laughs> he claims that it's loose, but he keeps riding because it's the difference between incoming third and fourth <laughs> in superstars, which is a competition that doesn't matter. And it's a proper old red grass track as well. Yeah. You, you can have gravel in your wound there for weeks as well. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. So he comes he's off in, his... He's buff though, well, isn't he? He's, he's, he's in, he's in wicked shape in that. You know? Yeah, he used, he used to do crazy things. Like he ran once from, um, from Doncaster to Nottingham just to see if he could do it. And then realised that he could do it. And was like, well, I'll never get tired again because I've run from Nottingham to Doncaster now. It's a benchmark, isn't it? You know, I, I mean... I'm I like the bit, the bit where they interview him at the end and they say, well, that's you probably done now for superstars. He went, well, no, I might do the steeplestation if it means that <laughs> yeah. it's been coming third and fourth. It's like, mate, you, you've, ju- you've just gone to Hamburg. Can you imagine getting Virgil van Dijk to race yeah. against another sportsman on a bike on a red gras track? For a TV yeah, show. Yeah, and for them and for them to come off because the bike isn't isn't doesn't work. I think the wheels are uh, loose. Imagine saying to your agent, or imagine <laughs> the, the TV the TV people saying to the insurer who's who's working with the show, what does Kevin make nowadays? Oh, he's on three hundred grand a week. Right. So if he's out he's he's gonna miss what? Four weeks? 
about 1.2 million in, yeah. in missed wages. The team's yeah. trying to win the European Cup as well, so yeah. uh, <laughs> you know, Kevin's under a lot of pressure. So, so the bike race is on, yeah, not a problem. That's all good. We've talked, yeah, we've talked to AXA, <laughs> no problem. And he never once blames the, the production. He never looks angry. He never looks miffed. He doesn't... He also doesn't really blame the bike. He just says, "Well, you know, I mean, uh, my front wheel got clipped, so there's only one way I was going to go. I could have, I could have braked and slowed down a bit, which me- would have meant um, I probably wouldn't have fallen. But then I'd have, I'd, I'd have lost the race on that first corner, so I was never going to do that. I don't want to go down the route that all modern footballers are sissies, because I, I don't think that's true. But what I, what definitely isn't true is that an investment." like a modern footballer, the idea that they'd be allowed to make a programme like that that was run so amateurishly, it's just, it is inconceivable. What, what, was, what, was, what were Brian Jackson and Precious McKenzie earning at the time? You know what I mean? It, you, you, you wouldn't have Cristiano Ronaldo uh, having, having a bike race against some bloke who did judo. <laughs> <laughs> you know... One's on a national lottery grant of about 40 quid a week, and the, and the other one's on £350,000 a week. <laughs> Stick them both on bikes, see who wins. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Right, that, uh, yeah. That, that one's going up uh, on the Twitter. Uh, my first clip to come into the bar is from 88. Uh, this is the final of the Euros. It's the cross all the way to the back post. It's about Bastin! Oh, he's gone for it! So I've gone for this one because, well, A, it's the USSR and the CCCP shirts are just things of beauty. The shirts from this game are things of beauty anyway. The Dutch shirt from this final is that very 80s style. It's exquisite, though. And also it was very unpopular in Holland um, and it was only worn for that tournament. But then... Now it's one of the most iconic shirts in the history of of of, of Dutch football, and it is. Why is it not? Why is it not like Because it was modern and it was seen as a little bit brash, I think, and also it didn't really look like Dutch shirts of the past because it's got that. Um, I don't even know what the what the effect, what you would call that effect, but it, it's got that. It's very very 1988, isn't it? Yeah, someone at Adidas got a computer program around that era and started rather than drawing. Shirts. They just designed them with something that looked like it was made on a like the um, uh, the Liverpool candy shirts from, yeah. from that era, which looked like they had bird poo splattered across them. It looks like something uh, from the film Tron or, <laughs> or Daryl. Oh. <laughs> now you're talking Mike's language. No final recommendation. <laughs> on. Do you know what? I'll go, go, I'll go on a limb. You at the at the risk of upsetting potential future, future sponsors, right? I think I think Adidas equipment in general is. I mean, when it comes to football shirts and, and rugby shirts, their their shirts tend to be head and shoulders above everybody else's. Oh, we'd still accept uh, sponsorship from um, from Nike oh, yeah. and New Balance. Oh, yeah. But yeah, yeah, we wouldn't mean I, it. I mean, <laughs> it's those three stripes. Um, that uh, Euro '88 tournament yes. that Holland won, they're f- the first major tournament that they. That, First major championship that they won because obviously they'd lost the finals in 74 and 78 in the World Cup. There's a really brilliant book called Football Against the Enemy by Simon Cooper, which is about um, relationships between different countries and how, you know, and how they are explored through football. So this is a quote uh, from that book. In the leadership line square in Amsterdam, people threw bicycles into the air and shouted, hooray, we've got our bikes back, because during the occupation, the Germans had confiscated all Dutch bicycles. It is such a grudge match, Holland versus Germany, and they beat Holland. They beat Germany on the way to um, um, winning that the semis, yeah. yeah. In the semis, an enormously significant oh, so result. I suppose our own version that is, 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 being, uh, is being Welsh lads. You know, when you feel that you've been, there's always that bit of extra. Uh, uh, what's what I'm looking for? That bit of spice when we play against England, because because the fact that England, we speak in English, right? You know, I learned English, and we've been anglicised as a country. So if you're, we've got nothing against the English personally, but there's that, you know. 
And I think it's the same. It must be the same with those countries that have been occupied. When you look at the Soviet states, the satellite states, the sort of rivalry there, or, the, or Holland against Germany, or so the Netherlands against Germany. I don't know. So. It, I wouldn't. I wouldn't throw a bike in the air, but I can understand. I, I don't think they were necessarily their own their own bikes. I oh, think bikes were just getting chucked in the air. It's also the the Welsh English, or the Wales England rivalry. Partly, it's such an imbalanced rivalry in terms of population size and resources as well. So whenever Wales beat England at any sport, it's an enormous achievement because they're a country of over fifty million people, and we're a country of three point one million people. You know, really, our rivalries should be with Birmingham, yeah, <laughs> Greater, Greater Manchester. Uh, when was the last time we lost a Villa? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, show, I showed my seven-year-old uh, the Van Basten goal from the final because, in my mind, it's just a thing of beauty, and I wanted to know if it kind of stood up to the test of time. And he called his nine-year-old brother into the room to have a look at it because he thought it was so special. So it is as good as I remember it being. It's the impossibility of the angle I find incredible because he's got no right, really, to score from there. And Marco van Basten is a... I mean, his career was sort of curtailed by injuries. So it's, it's, we, we, we did see the best of him because there were a couple of years oh, when yeah. he was at Milan when he was fantastic, but his career certainly ended you know, more quickly than it should have done. He could have lasted. Prematurely. Yeah, it was, his, um, it was his Achilles, I think. But at his best, what a play. He's also a very good footballer for a high, highlight reel. This is a paid advert from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now, we all carry around lots of different sort of stress moments, whether it's like big or small. It could be as huge as how am I going to pay the mortgage this month? Or, you know, I'm, I'm ill, but I don't really want to talk to anybody about that because I don't want to make them feel stressed about it as well. Or, you know, it could be just as, something as small as how am I going to get to school pickup in time? I've got a meeting. How do I change that? How do I move that? I forgot to cancel that. And lots of the time we keep it bottled up. And whether it's big or small, it can really start to affect us negatively. And therapy is kind of a safe space to get those things off your chest. So whether it's like coming up with plans to, to organize your life a little bit better or whether it's just having someone to talk to about those things you don't want to stress out your mates or your family with. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's convenient, accessible, affordable and entirely online. You will be matched with a therapist after filling out a brief survey and you can switch therapists at any time. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash distant. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash distant. So every week, one of us is going to bring a documentary to the bar. Um, on Twitter, those of you who managed to find us, at uh, TSDSB1, it's, it's going to catch on. Yeah, yeah, I have faith in you. It's, 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 it's really easy to find. It's really easy to search for. I've nailed it. At TSD, SB1. Um, original Jungle Sound has recommended Free Solo, which is the oh, yeah. climbing the one. Crazy. Which yeah, is petrified. It's yeah. really good. That cracking suggestion. Uh, James Orr suggests uh, 9.79. Don't know if you've seen that one. That is the 100 metres final from Seoul. Oh, um, brilliant. Where they kind of go back, and I think it's only Calvin Smith and the guy who is from Brazil who pulls up after about 40 metres who don't have some sort of drugs controversy in their career at some point. So that's that's definitely worth a look. Um, Howell Reese says, anything ESPN 30 for 30 would be amazing. The two Escobars is good. Uh, one for Ellis. Uh, once in a lifetime, featuring Swansea boy Georgie Chinaglia. Oh, Chinaglia. yeah, yeah, I have, so I've been told about that. I've watched it. We'll have a look into that one. Hoop Dreams from Tibbs. That's a Stone Cold classic. And Gareth Hopkins says a couple that I've never heard of. Uh, Dogtown and the Zed Boys about the birth of the Californian skateboarding scene in the seventies. So, if you want to get involved, get your thoughts across to us at TSDSB1. See, it is catching on. It's catching on in my head. Well said, Come well on. said. 
Those ESPN 30 for 30s are superb. They are top layer. Um, and seven days free if you subscribe. That's, that's all I'm going to say. We're trying to get you ways of watching things. Seven days free. Get yourself in there. Get yourself out. That's all I'm saying. Uh, Al, what is your choice for this week? My choice of documentary is An Impossible Job, which was a Channel 4 cutting-edge documentary that followed Graham Taylor um, managing England, trying to reach USA 94, the World Cup in 1994. Huge amount of pressure as England manager anyway. Um, it's that's the nature of the job. But England obviously had got to the f- semi-final of Italian ninety. They did quite they, well. They did very badly, being knocked out in the groups um, at Euro ninety two under Graham Taylor. Uh, Guy Lineker's final cap when he's taken off as a sub, and he famously throws his captain's armband to the floor, which is his last act as as an England player. Now, it really is. An extraordinary documentary. So it was. It was um, aired initially, or the original air date was uh, January nineteen ninety four. The idea that a program like that, with the kind of access that Channel Four are given, could be made now, following Gareth Southgate, it is inconceivable. It is in. Conceivable. Graham Taylor. He wasn't a naive man. You know, he'd managed Watford to great success in the 80s and Aston Villa as well, one of England's biggest clubs, come very close to winning the league with Aston Villa. You know, he'd worked with the press, but I don't think he realised he could turn his clip mic off because (laughs) (laughs) just the amount of stuff that he gives away. And you're watching it through your fingers and it's, it's quite odd actually because, you know, he is a failure as an England manager. However, he does come across quite well. I think he comes across as a very honourable man and a, and a really good bloke. There's a bit where England are playing a fixture at Wembley and John Barnes is getting horrendous abuse and somebody racially abuses him and Graham Taylor turns round and, and has a go at this fan in the crowd and says he's a human being, you can't talk about him like that. And again, it's just unimaginable in... In in you know in, t- in today's game because managers tend to be you know they're they're much further away from the crowd. I mean the old Wembley was a completely different sort of kettle of fish to the to the modern Wembley. I'm I'm not sure Gareth Southgate would be able to do that at the new Wembley. There there are, it was it was a very very quotable program. You know do I do do I not like that? Obviously is the one that you know still gets said by people. Um, you know, can we not knock it? On. Can we, can not, we knock not knock it? it as well? I, I personally love it when he just shouts, Carlton! 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 At uh, Carlton Palmer. Carlton! Hey! John! 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 Barnsley! Took in more! Took in more! Took inside more! In to go out! Les, demand it! All it is is one, he's got his area to go. Tell him, Les! That's well, you tell him! The Brats can't see you! I can let him know! One pass earlier! I'm unhappy with the movement of the front players, all right? Hey, I'm unhappy with the movement of the front two players. Yes, we are, yeah. I'm, you're not playing the ball at all. I mean, where's Gascoigne? Where's Gascoigne? Where is Gascoigne? Sharpie! Sharpie! Come on! Fucking hell! Come on! Come on! Push on, Lee! And the way, you know, that England team—it was a—it was an England team in transition. We'd probably seen the—they'd probably seen the best of John Barnes. Beardsley had gone. Alan Shearer—he lost through injury. Through injury, Stuart Pearce—he lost through injury. The only world-class performer in that team was Paul Gascoigne. Who'd who'd you know been injured very badly in the ninety one FA Cup final, so wasn't quite the same, and he was a little bit unhappy at last year as well. So sometimes imagine trying to man manage um, Paul Gascoigne. I mean, well, you, yeah, I watched that. I, I hadn't seen that for a long time, Al, until you, you mentioned the clip. I, I watched it. Um, it was like watching a, a naughty kid in like in like a man's body. I couldn't. There's one bit yeah, right, yeah. right at the beginning of the dock where they're coming on the on the field for England, and the band yeah. the band are marching off. And Gaza just grabs a guardsman by his nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I think, what, what are you doing? <laughs> oh, that bit when, when, when Sky Sports are interviewing uh, the team at the hotel, and he's up on the balcony <laughs> shouting down, fuck off, Sky Sports. Sky- yeah, yes. 
I mean, anyone who ever spent time with Gaza, he, he the, the man barely needed to sleep. He was just constantly on the lookout for mischief. And uh, I read Danny, one of Danny Baker's autobiographies and they were in London and he said, I've always wanted to drive a bus. We just get on the bus. And because he was England's most famous person at the time, he says to the bus driver, can I drive the bus? And the bus driver goes, uh, all right, thanks, because you, you can't send to drive the bus, a London bus down Marble Arch, which has got a load of commuters on it. But, there's, there's one bit where before they play Norway and Taylor is it's obviously like a set piece interview and they, they've cut it together to not quite stitch him up, but it kind of makes him look like a bit of a wanny where he's going, uh, it doesn't matter what shape Gascoigne's in, he could be 10 stone, he could be 12 stone. The Norwegians fear him. And then it cuts to a shot of him and Phil Neal sat on the bench together going, he's playing shite and he Gascoigne's yeah, playing yeah. shite today. <laughs> oh, I bet you any money Phil Neal agrees, does he? Oh, yeah, well, yes, I mean... Yes, boss, shy boss, shy boss. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, Phil Neal famously came out of it very badly. I mean, Phil Neal, who won four European Cups, I think, with Liverpool. You know, one of the most decorated English Great footballers player, of yeah. all time. Great, a wonderful player, but has got nothing to offer as a coach. What was Laurie McMenemy's role with the team? Do you know what? I can't work that out either. He just seems to be there. Yeah, he just seems to be to the left of Graham Taylor the whole time. Does Graham know most does, saying sentences. Does Graham know he's there? But, <laughs> I mean, I, but the, the, he just the, sort of sits there with a blazer on, and I don't know what he does. But the bit that I cannot get over is at the end when they lose to Holland, so it looks like they're not going to qualify for USA 94, which is, you know, in English football terms, a catastrophe. And he's been really unlucky. You know, that England team have been unlucky. Um, there's a foul on David Platt and Koeman should have been sent off and it should have been a penalty, but it's not given. Koeman is booked, which actually is quite inconsistent with the rules. And then <laughs> the, the team break. It's a free kick given on the other end of the pitch, which obviously Koeman takes. Now, the first time he takes it, <laughs> he hammers it into the wall. The wall isn't... I, I think it's not the wall isn't... It's, tennis, uh, I think Paul Ince runs out. Paul Ince. Paul Ince runs out. So... It's retaken. I, know, I mean, this is a huge spoiler alert, but it's 25 years ago, so you're going to have to get over it, I'm afraid. But obviously the epic, the the free kick is um, taken for a second time. Uh, I think it's Brian Moore, the commentator, says he's going to flick one, he's going to flick one, and he's flicked one, and it goes in. So now that's it. You know, they've lost. They've got to beat San Marino 7-0. They concede after nine seconds. Now, obviously... They've, they've got this incredible access to Graham Taylor and his team. And one thing I found so sad about it is that the Dutch FA hadn't allowed uh, the Channel 4 crew access. So what, what Graham Taylor did, because he'd, he'd given them his word and he said, listen, you've, you've followed us for the whole thing and I've promised that you'll get access to everything. He actually disguised the camera crew as England physios. He gave them England team tracksuits and they carried their film equipment into the stadium in team kit bags. They then get this amazing footage that, you know, pretty much ends his career. Maybe McMenemy was a sound man. (laughs) (laughs) But there's this bit when, you know, I I came out of the programme really liking him. But there is yeah, very un- honest man. Oh, but there is undoubtedly a Partridgean aspect to Graham Taylor. Now, England at the time, they still are, I think, were um sponsored by McDonald's. And there's a bit when he's he's getting absolutely hammered in this press in this press conference. But he's sipping from yes. a big <laughs> like McDonald's. <laughs> Yes, it looks like it looks like someone's gone to the drive-through and got yeah. a banana milkshake before he's doing his press conference, and it just is undignified. And also, it's not Graham Taylor's fault. Nineteen ninety-three is probably the nadir for football tracksuit design, so he wears this horrific tracksuit come shell suit for a lot of the for a lot of the press conferences. And you know, for me, it was Phil Neal in the in the red curly wig. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, I think Taylor would have been more comfortable in a suit, but it, the, the, there is a Partridgean quality to him. But the bit right at the end, which saddens me to this day, when he knows that his he knows that his time as England manager is over, he knows he can't come back from this, so he goes up to the to the fourth official, and he says, "You see, at the end of the day, 
I get the sack. He then goes <laughs> to the linesman and he says, I'm just, I'm just saying to your colleague, uh, the, ref, the referee's got me the sack. Thank, the sack. thank him ever so much for just that. Just taps him on the back. So taps him on the back, yeah. nice and friendly. <laughs> I'm a meter, I'm a meter, I'm a meter. As if some, so, you know, as if the German fellow's going to get that lovely English sarcasm. I think it was lost on him. I was just saying to your friend there that the referee's got me the sack. So thanks a lot for that. <laughs> he clearly, he has to say something. So he goes up to the linesman and he's quite controlled. Like he's not shouting at him and he's not screaming at him. But he just has to express the fact that because of that, because of that referee's mistake... He has lost his job, and it's one of the highest-profile jobs, you know, certainly in English sport. Oh my God, it's heartbreaking. Right, second round of YouTube clips for us uh, on episode one. Uh, I'm going to go first on this one um, because this is one of my favourite things. This is from 1996 when Rugby Union had just gone professional and they let Wigan play against all the Rugby Union sides in the Middlesex It was the first time a rugby league side had run onto Union's hallowed turf, but Wigan weren't about to be particularly nice to anyone in way of thanks. Having already embarrassed Bath in the clash of the codes, they were after more. Their first victims were second division courage side Richmond, Humiliated not just by a 47 So, if you imagine this is a team lineup, okay? By the ease and Martin Afaya, Inga Twigamala, Henry Paul, Next Jason Robinson, Chris Radlinski, Andy Farrell, Scott Quinnell, and Sean Edwards. First round, they've got a second division side, Richmond. <laughs> and they absolutely. There's one bit where Martin Afaya runs the full length of the pitch to score a try, stands on the try line, and waits for Sean Edwards to catch up with him and chucks in the ball to score a try. It's the most. It's the most wonderful and humiliating thing because it showed that, I mean, most of our South Walian kind of heroes had gone by this point and were on their way back. And we'd missed out on this whole generation of being any good at rugby union. But the golf, I didn't sort of appreciate it as a kid, but the difference between fully well, professional athletes. The, the, the talk of the time, well, I remember that was a real period of flux in rugby when the game went open. Um, and we all thought, certainly my mates in rugby and the people that I knew all thought within sort of two or three years there'd be no rugby union. It would, we'd just have, it would just be rugby league everywhere because, because they, they were that much better athletes. The thing I remember from that period, because, you know, in West Wales there was no rugby league at all. I used to watch it because it was on grandstand. So by the mid-90s, the BBC had started losing the rights to the the top tier of sports that they used to show on grandstands. By the mid-90s, grandstands seemed to be largely rugby league, from what I remember. Great day. So I used used to watch it, but I didn't really understand it. My my dad had no time for it at all. But do you remember the clash of the codes when Wigan played Bath? Yeah, Bath against... Yeah, yeah. So yeah, they, so this was the same. It might have even been within a fortnight of. It was this. May '96, the clash of the codes, because I, I I I remembered Wigan hammering Bath, but I couldn't remember the score. Wigan so, smashed them in league, and Bath beat them, but not massively yeah, in the union. So in rugby league, Wigan beat Bath eighty-two points to six <laughs> at Main Road <laughs> in Manchester, <laughs> and in rugby union, Bath beat Wigan forty-four points to nineteen. So it was, you know, I'm, it's pretty obvious who the superior team is in 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 the whole in that. the whole rugby league thing in Wales, especially. It's interesting if you look at the history of it. There were there was there was teams in Barry, there were teams in Bridgend, there were teams like before the war, you know, where it was a working because it was a working class game, and it was very much the sort of a, a public school game in England. But it was a, it was the the game of the collieries and the pits and the steelworks in Wales, and there was this real feeling that rugby league was going to become the predominant. Code of rugby, and then after the Second World War, everything changed. But you look at the thirties; like the, the rugby league in France was the same thing. It was it was it was the working class game. It was huge in France, and then basically the, the Nazis saw uh, rugby league as this as the communist game because it was it was the workers' game. So the Vichy regime in France basically outlawed rugby league and promoted rugby union and gave all the rugby league clubs assets, stadiums, money to rugby union teams. And that stayed the same way through until... I, I don't think they, I don't know if they ever paid it back. And basically, it was, it was a nail in the coffin of French rugby league because it was outlawed under, under Vichy France. But I think in Wales as well, it was, it was always seen as... as um, 
I, I don't know how they got away with it with union. I, I was my background's union, but how they managed to keep union so strong in Wales. Well, a lot of it is the uh, influence of the chapel, because yeah, what the chapel didn't like was playing sport for money. So rugby union fits certainly in the 19th century in the early part of the 20th century fitted in with how the Welsh saw themselves pious church going um and and then and then what happens and when all the resources are poured into rugby union and the rugby union team starts to play well it then becomes a cultural thing so Wales obviously beat uh, New Zealand in 1905 they were the you know the best team on the planet and then you started getting newspaper articles and things like the Western Mail arguing that you know, the Welsh were genetically suited to be good rugby union players. And then the Five Nations Days became effectively a bigger day than St David's Day. And then it just kind of, you know, it, we, we've got five, we've got five St Patrick's Days. It's, it's you know, the Six Nations, isn't it? That sevens, that Middlesex sevens. The thing about the sevens was it was the perfect, it was the perfect vehicle for rugby league. Yeah. When you take away you take away the rucks and take away meaningful lineouts and, and scrums, it was just it was just tackling, running yeah. and passing. Yeah. And you know. watching Twigamala in I think it's the semi final of it, where I don't know whether he just wants to hit a man. <laughs> but his handoff he, he looks like he's running towards the posts one way. There's a guy chasing him, and it looks like he's running both directions at the same time because he's simultaneously running really fast but also slowing down to deliberately hit a man in the face yeah. who's not going to get anywhere near him to tackle him. It's beautiful, if you like that kind of thing. It also which, I, which, which, I which you do, Mike. Yeah. Sevens <laughs> is so entertaining. What's your clip for round two, Mike? Right, this clip is a cricket clip. Um, it's not very often in sport that... that that one person completely revolutionises a sport. This is Shane Wan's first ever delivery in a, in a test match against England on English soil. First ball in test cricket in England for Shane Wan. And he's done it. He started off with the most beautiful delivery. Gadding has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. He asked Kenny the thing Power about that ball is, um, he, he'd, he'd had a couple of tests uh, against New Zealand. I, th- I think he, he played against Shane Warne. Uh, but this was his first test uh, against England on English soil. And spin bowling in general, and certainly leg bowling in particular, were basically dead in the water. The, the West Indies have been so powerful in the, in the 70s and the 80s with, with pace bowling um, that it was almost seen as a, as a dying art. And on that tour, I think Australia picked three fast bowlers and, and they thought they'd give this one spinner a chance, who was Shane Warne. And they bring on... England have started that test quite well. Uh, I think they were 70-odd for one. And then uh, Gatting came in, um, put another sort of 10, 10, 15 runs on. But quite settled, a nice start. And they bring Shane Warne on. Now, Gatting was renowned for being a great player against spin. That was his, that was his specialty. You know, and <laughs> just watch that delivery, right? I mean, I've I, I played not very good cricket, but I watch a lot of cricket. Watch that delivery because as Shane Warne lets go of the ball, it's basically on middle stump for most of the trajectory, right? For about 15 yards. And then it just drifts sort of two feet outside of Gatton's leg stump to pitch in the, in the footmarks. And he comes out to it, textbook, you know, bat down, He's going to go for bat pads, so here's the pad. He's going to be not out because it's not pitched in line. Hits the bat, it's going to go down. And this ball must turn the best part of three feet and take to take his off stump off, the, the top, his off bales off. And he's just, I just love Gatton's look. <laughs> he's come out to it. And you just see, his, I'm not going to swear, but he thinks, what the, what happened then? <laughs> He'd never seen anything like it. And this, he'd been playing cricket for 30 years, you know, and, and specialising against spin. It was just absolutely fantastic. I think he took three more of that innings, um, uh, I think he took th- I think he took four in the second innings. But it just changed It changed cricket like that. And he was this good-looking, young, cocksure, Aussie, you know, bleached blonde hair, oxide on the lips and on the nose, always had a suntan, had a bit of a swagger about him. And it just made spin bowling cool. Like for us, it was always like John Embry. You know, it was it was like a this <laughs> sort of you know, spin bowling was like for the old guys and the fatties who, who, who couldn't run up. 
And you had this, <laughs> this cool young Aussie just making the ball do ridiculous things. I just, I love watching him play, but that, you know, sometimes the, the, the sporting gods uh, just smile on people because that was, imagine that your first ball in England, first test match, and to, a delivery that's just known as the ball of the century. Also, he just makes, if you watch YouTube clips of Shane Warne, he makes the ball do things that you would you don't think should be possible. That's what I mean, even before it lands. He's a magician. There's something they call the, is it the Magnus effect or something? So he, he sort of made, the, like I said, he, he would make it drift one way and then spin violently the other direction. But he had such mastery of it. I was watching, I mean, I think Summer Sky's coverage of, of the cricket is superb, but they, they do this sort of masterclass thing now and again. And they had, uh, they had worn in the nets last summer, just in one of the intervals, just showing it, just the complete command of a cricket ball. You know, and he's, he's retired now, but he, he can still make that ball do whatever he wants to do, and he's got every delivery, so he can do the he can do the bowl the googly. He's got a he's got a off break. He's got he's got his leg spinner. He's got his leg cutter. He's got. It's like when you watch top top any sport, right? You watch a top pre kick. You watch someone playing top level snooker to have that complete mastery. It wasn't like I'm going to launch this down and hope for the best. It's like I know exactly. I know how you play the game. I know what your favorite shot is. You, and he would set the field almost every ball, right? I'm going to put this ball exactly where I want to put it and make it do exactly what I want it to do. I've I, I read that um, Gatting and Gooch, who were stood at the other end when that delivery came, both individually, without telling each other, wrote letters to Warren, just congratulating him on it and saying, have a good career. Well, I just love cricket. I, I, I read, I, I, can't, I, I can't remember who said the particular quotes, but obviously Gatting was, was, was the fuller-figured man, right? Yeah. And I think one of the quotes was like, if, if that had been a cheese roll, it wouldn't have got past it. But what some, one of his mates said. And then one of his other teammates said, I can't believe a ball spanned the entire width of Gatting. Which it... <laughs> so there was zero sympathy for him. But it was just, you've you, you sometimes got to just take your hat off and say, you know, well, that was just fantastic. Because he looks at the, at the, the bowler's end and just go, you can see him thinking, what, what happened then? Did that hit? Did that take the bails off? You just couldn't believe it. You'd never see anything like it. Right, last clip for this week comes from you, Al. What are you going for? This is Barry McGuigan versus Eusebio Pedrosa um, at Loftus Road, uh, home of QPR in 1985. Uh, June 1985, in fact, uh, Shepherd's Bush in West London. And it's the night that Barry McGuigan becomes um, world champion. So he was the first Irish world champion for 35 years, I think. And the reason I've chosen this clip, the entire fight, all, you know, the, the, the entire programme, actually, one hour, 23 minutes of it, is available on YouTube. The atmosphere at Loftus Road is just extraordinary. You don't really get atmospheres like that at any sporting event anymore, I don't think. So his ring walk, Barry McGuigan, it takes him 12 minutes to get from the, the changing rooms to... The Ring. Now, um, it was shown on uh, ITV, I think, in the UK. 19 million people watched it. It was shown on ABC in America. ABC had to cut... Uh, they had to cut to a commercial break because there were, there were 27,000 people in, in, in the crowd. At least 20,000 of them had come from Ireland. Um, so they, they, they don't let him get, get to the ring. They, they're just mobbing him. The gangways are all full. The security can't move people and McGuigan had apparently told the producer of the American um, the American show he said listen it's going to take me ages to get to the ring you know I've seen on the schedule you've got you've got two minutes or whatever it is and you know for me just to walk there that's not going to happen and they said well security can be there he said security is irrelevant <laughs> there's 20,000 people from Ireland coming over so I'm afraid y- you need to come up with a plan B so they had, to, they had to cut to a commercial break. His father, who'd represented um, the Republic of Ireland at the Eurovision Song Contest, sings Danny Boy. You know, he was also one of the reasons that his father singing Danny Boy is so emotional is that he was immensely close to his father. When his father died in 1987, uh, he didn't want to carry on. It took, it took him a long time for him to realise that he wanted to carry on boxing because without his father there, he just thought it was a completely pointless exercise. Well, 
if, I've just seen I've never seen anything like it so if even if you're if you've only got a vague interest in boxing but are, are a fan of the sport I would really recommend this clip I wanted to bring books into this as well because we've all got a lot more time on our hands at the moment than we thought we would at this particular period of time. Um, So, uh, sports books that can get you through a day, three days, four days, whatever it is on your lockdown. Um, Mike, what have you got? Right, so this touches on, we mentioned earlier, my my penchant for the 70s. Uh, This is called Life of Evil. It's the Evil Can Evil story by Stuart Barker. Um, a very, very, very complex man, Evil Can Evil. Uh, basically, from a little place called Butte, Montana, um, middle of nowhere. You know, grew up very poor and just became this daredevil. Basically, invented himself. Uh, and as a, I remember, as a small kid watching him, um, watching him do his jumps and usually crash. Right, which. <laughs> He did. He tended a crash, but I mean, um, and we loved him for it. We, we talk about atmosphere. I mean, seventy-five thousand people in Wembley in like seventy-four or five, I think, watched him um, ne- nearly clear a few buses. And he crashed it. He crashed yeah. again. Then um, I, 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 the thing about it was, it was like I think failing gloriously in the seventies was was a big deal. You know, I, we love yeah. Evil Evil because he, he just kept getting on a bike and kept crashing. Same reason that we love, you know. Everybody could tell you how many operations and pins Barry Sheen had on his legs. You know, that was a big deal as well. I've got a few quotes here. It's, it's a fascinating book. He's, he doesn't come across as, as a nice bloke. He comes across as a very interesting, fairly mixed-up fella, but obviously had kahunas the size of watermelons. Um, I'll just give you a few quotes, and I'll let people read this, but if you, if you want a really interesting, very quotable uh, biography of, a, of a, an icon, then this is a great book. So I'll give you a few quotes. Um, I made $60 million in my career and I spent $63 million. But I'd rather live a rich man than die a rich man. Right? So I love that one. Because you saw like this this cane. <laughs> you had this cane with a, with a crystal top and in the, there was always like two shots of wild turkey whiskey inside his cane, right, wherever he went. <laughs> so um, he says, this is him saying, Evil Knievel was a character I created. He was even hard for me to live with sometimes. He wouldn't do anything I told him to, the dumb son of a bitch. Right? That's talking about himself, wow. right? Now that's really in character, isn't it? And look at this. This is this is. I don't think PC existed until about nineteen. Certainly, it wasn't in the seventies. Probably the nineteen nineties. Um, chapter five, opening quote. I'm going to have the best clothes, the best boots, the best diamonds, the best cars, motorcycles, booze, and women on the face of this earth. I mean, that's a mantra we can all live by. You know, I mean, oh, yeah. when that, when the shutdown's over, mate, I'm that's what I'm doing. <laughs> So mine kind of ties in with what Ellis was talking about earlier with the Barry McGuigan clip. Uh, it's from it's by Donald McRae, who writes a lot in The Guardian, writes a lot for Boxing News. It's called In Sunshine or In Shadow, and it's about boxing during that period. Um, so it's all about how Northern Ireland basically got behind boxers regardless of where they were from. It kind of went through that divide. And I'm fascinated by boxing, and I'm fascinated by the Troubles in Northern Ireland. There's this one story about how Ireland, because if, you, if you're a boxer from Northern Ireland, you fight for Ireland. You box for Ireland, apart from in the Commonwealth Games, where you have to box for Northern Ireland. So there'll be plenty of Catholic fighters like McGuigan, who fought for Northern Ireland during the Commonwealth Games, fight for Ireland at the Olympics. That's kind of how it works. So there's an amateur boxing show that's organised between East Germany and uh, and Ireland, and they want it to take place on the Shankill Road. So they want Irish. Be fine. They want Irish boxers in green vests on the Shankill Road in a boxing club. There, so the guy organising it has meetings with all of the paramilitary organisations. He sits down with the UDA, the UFF, the UVF, the IRA, the Provisional IRA, and they all say, "Fine, it's all good." So they check in all their guns on the way in. No guns wow. allowed. Yeah, we, it's, it's, there's an atmosphere. What's it, what's it called, sir? It's called In Sunshine or In Shadow. And it's McGuigan's first time fighting in an Irish vest. And there is no trouble at all to the point where the RUC say to the organisers afterwards, if we could have one of these every night, this would be fantastic. 
it's right up my alley. Wow. It's an amazing story. The, the entire book is full of stories like that. I, I love Donald McRae. It's, it's well worth it if you've got the time. Wow. The book I have chosen is McIlvany Unboxing uh, by Hugh McIlvany, who is the only sports journalist to have won um, Journalist of the Year. He is the greatest sports writer ever, in my opinion. So he was at The Observer for 30 years and then he was at The Sunday Times. So this is a collection of his articles from The Observer and The Sunday Times. Um, going right up from Henry Cooper fighting Ali at Highbury in the 60s um, up to the late 90s, I think. So, yeah, so the, the first article is Ali versus Cooper from May 66. Um, and then he, he covers, you know, Ali's... Uh, if you're a fan of Ali, this book is fantastic because the stuff on uh, the, the thriller in Manila and the rumble in, jung- and in the jungle is all brilliant. But he's such a good writer. So uh, I'm gonna. I've got. I've got a couple of quotes for you. This is about Bruno's ring walk um, when he fought Tyson in 1996. Walking taut-faced and dry-mouthed from the dressing room to that illuminated square of canvas amid a bedlam of exhortations, crossing himself repeatedly like a cardinal on speed. <laughs> you just, that. you just, you could just, you know, I mean, I'm not knocking Frank Bruno. I'd have been terrified myself. But that perfectly sums up how terrifying it must have been to fight Mike Tyson. Bruno gave the impression that the enormity of what he was undertaking was suddenly being borne in on him. Now, every time I read that paragraph, I think, imagine walking to the ring to fight Mike Tyson thinking... In his pump. Oh, God. I've trained for 12 weeks for this. And the realisation is only just him. He's an absolute animal. I'm about to get kicked in badly in front of thousands and millions of people. I'm assuming we'll have a, a lot of Welsh listeners to this podcast. He is fantastic on Welsh boxes as well. So there's a great article on Howard Winston from Merth there. But he's, um, he's, he writes about Johnny Owen, uh, who tragically lost his life boxing. His personality was a small cloud of reticence until he entered the ambience of boxing in a gym or an arena. Once there, he was transformed from a 24-year-old virgin whose utterances tended to come in muffled monosyllables into a confident, skilled practitioner of a rough but exciting trade. It may be, as I suggested in the hours after seeing him disastrously injured at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles, that Johnny Owen's tragedy was to find himself articulate in such a dangerous language. Wow. I mean, he is a fantastic writer. So um, his book on football as well is tremendous, McIlvany on football. I would recommend that as well. Uh, right, we're going to be back with another one of these as soon as we can. Another socially distanced sports bar will be headed your way. Uh, the theme music, by the way, uh, has been played for us by someone who is probably too talented to have bothered to have done a theme tune for us. Um, we're going to call them the secret guitarist for now, but I want you to guess who it is. So um, if you go to the reviews section of wherever you're listening to this, give us a five-star review and then stick a name in of a guitarist who you think it might be. Go big, because it's bigger than you think it might be. Um, on Twitter, we are <laughs> at TSDSB1. It's going to catch <laughs> yeah, on, okay? Yeah. It's going to catch on. It's fine. At TSDS... I can't even say it. That's how bad it is. At TSDSB1. Tustaba uh, one. one. Yeah, there we are. Easy. There you go, cool. see? Yeah. See? We're the Tustaba boys. Yeah. It's not... Well, no, we're not. They're, they're different guys. We're the Tustaba one. Oh, yeah, of course. We, yeah. we didn't even get Tustaba. <laughs> Now, that was, that was already gone. Um, <laughs> we're going to talk about beers on the episode uh, next time, so get your suggestions in on what we need on tap in the bar. We need two beers on tap. Uh, the guys at Beer 52 are going to provide us with the bottles and cans uh, and the code you need for that, beer52 slash distant, to claim your eight free beers. Right, we'll be back with another one. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Enjoy your isolation and your distance. Cheers, Steph. Cheers, Al. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you.